Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Even during his lifetime, Howard Brown, B-R-O-W-N-E, was not well known outside of his given fields. His novels, including his best detective fiction, were written under pseudonyms, and his work as editor and Hollywood writer, though credited, remained mostly unknown except by those in the business. Howard Brown was born in 1908 and lived to the age of 91, dying in 1999. During his lifetime, he published hundreds of stories in science fiction and detective magazines, several novels. He wrote dozens of television shows, including Mission Impossible, Run for Your Life, Maverick, and Cheyenne, and three of his film scripts were produced. Portrait of a Mobster with Vic Morrow, The St. Valentine's Day Massacre with Jason Robards and George Siegel, and Capone starring Ben Gazzara. He also wrote radio scripts in the late 1940s. His day job before he went to Hollywood was as an associate editor and then editor-in-chief for Ziff Davis Pulp Magazines, which included Amazing Stories, Fantastic Adventures, and other lesser-known fiction magazines. His work is now out of print, though his four noir novels, in the style of Raymond Chandler and featuring a detective named Paul Pine, are available in a small press edition put out by Hafner Press. My former co-host, Richard A. Lupoff, interviewed Howard Brown at Brown's home in Southern California sometime in the mid to late 1980s. This was Brown's only radio interview and only the second extant interview on record. By that time, he was retired, teaching a couple of college courses, and working on a new novel that never saw publication. The interview has now been remastered and re-edited and is presented for the first time in 30 years. I wanted to start off with a little bit of, of straight biographical information about when and where you were born, family, relationships, education, and childhood. When I was born is lost in antiquity, okay? <laughs> Nobody remembers back that far. I was born in Nebraska, Arapaho, Nebraska. Had a thousand people when I lived there, still got a thousand people. Because as one guy leaves, another one comes in, or somebody's born, you know, it's that kind of town. At 13, I moved to Lincoln, Nebraska, went through school to the beginning of my senior year, left to go to Chicago to see a major league ball game. The Cubs or the White Sox? White Sox, because I want to see Babe Ruth play. Okay. That's how far back this goes. Fell in love with the town and didn't leave it until years later, and that was only to visit. First thing you ever did, you, just, you were a writer from age 17 on? No, no, I wrote a thing in my life. Although I kept getting forced into positions where I had to write things. I had a friend who became the editor of the Red and Black, the Lincoln High School newspaper. As a gesture of friendship, he made me an associate editor, which, you know, was like making Hitler uh, head of a synagogue, because I knew nothing about it. So we went 
to press one day. They had to go to press, and there was a whole column vacant. We didn't have anything to put in it. So I wrote a story, started a story called A Dot of Blood. And it was about a San Francisco G-man, or they didn't call him, he was a treasury man, who was after some Chinese smugglers. My knowledge of Chinese smugglers was only exceeded by my knowledge of the Oaspe Bible. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And I, I wrote it. I got down to the near the end, and I hadn't even gotten into the story, really. So I put to be continued. We filled the space. Well, that paper was distributed to parents, you know, to the students who brought it home, and their parents would look at it. Some did. And Mr. Culler, the superintendent of the school, began to get phone calls saying, how dare you put this kind of filth, I don't know it was filthy, but a few people were killed, in this <laughs> high school paper, and on and on and on. Well, Culler was supposed to have read each dummy before, you know, it went to print. And he hadn't done it, because there's nothing more innocuous than a high school paper, you know. Yeah. Well, he apologized, and he called my friend, the editor, and he says, I don't any more of this nonsense in this paper. Forget it. Now the next issue came out, and it didn't have the dot of blood in it. Well, the students raised hell. It's astonishing. Even in those days, students would get up on their hind legs. They sent a committee in to see Mr. Culler and to protest this thing. And Culler says, if your parents say it's okay, I'll you can go ahead. I'd hope that they wouldn't surrender, you know, that the school would say it can't go in the paper and then I wouldn't have to write anymore. So I wrote, you know, making it up as I went along, and I finally got tired of it and killed a hero, and that was the end of the story. Anyway, I went to Chicago. I got a job the next day. Well, I was a butter and egg salesman. I got hired to put eggs in these little cartons that the women buy in the grocery store. Paid a fast 18 bucks a week, but really was no strain on your mind. The superintendent of the place, a guy named Ted Dale, said to me, and he was well educated, and he said, You ever sell anything? How would you like to take a stab at being a salesman? So I said, I'll try anything. So he gives me an order book and a list of prices and sends me out. Well, this place was, if you know Chicago at all, was on what they call the old valley section, which was west of the loop, not very far west of the loop, but in a slum area. And I called on groceries and delicatessens and chop suey joints and everything that day, and I came back, and Ted said, do you have any luck? And I said, well, I've got this, and I had a whole bunch of orders, because I went in looking pathetic, and that's the best way to sell anything. And these people bought things from me, and I had done good. And that made me a salesman. I got a salary and a commission, and commission on repeat orders. So I'm 18 years old, and I'm making about 100 bucks a week in a time when the average working man made 35. And I was broke at the end of every week, because when you're 18 years old, who saves money? And that lasted until they went bankrupt, of which I had no part in. So I left them, and I got a job with Carson Peary Scott as a collection correspondent. That paid $30 a week. This was in 1932, I guess it was. Then I got a job as credit man for this chain of schlock furniture stores in Chicago. The Marquis de Sade would have loved it, but I didn't. So I figured I got to get out of this business. So I had read a copy of Jack Woodford's book, 
trial and error. Classic book. And he said the easiest people in the world to write for are the newspaper syndicates because if you can spell correctly, they'll buy it. So I sat down on a Sunday and wrote two short shorts because the Chicago Daily News was running what they called the evening short story. I did what Woodford says, start out with two people in an interesting position, write a thousand words, then write the end. I wrote two of them on a Sunday, and they both played well. Well, I sent them to Pat Lally at the Daily News, and I got a call from him to come in and see him. And he manuscripts stacked the ceiling in one corner of the city room. He'd been an old reporter, and they put him out to pasture by having him buy these things. And he had him on his desk, and he said, Now, I'm buying these two stories. I'll pay you $15 apiece. Now, that's 30 bucks for, you know, a Sunday's work. But he says, Don't write any more for me. So I said, Well, why not? He says, You write well enough for the pulp magazines. You can write longer stories. They'll pay you better. Try your hand at writing pulps. I said, Yes, sir. And I went out of there, and I went home, and I said, I'm going to write a book. I had been an avid reader of Edgar Rice Burroughs, so I thought, I'll write a Tarzan story. I know him backwards. But I had to prepare myself for it. So I took his books and I made lists of adjectives. Adjectives describing jungle, adjectives describing animals, describing action, and I categorized them all. So if I'm writing and I want to describe the jungle, I turn to this, and here's a bunch of fine <laughs> adjectives. You know, I handled it like you'd handle a problem in school. And I wrote Warrior of the Dawn. It's been 52 something. And I finished it. The publisher allowed me to see a copy of the Reader's Report. And the opening line of the Reader's Report was, take the typewriter away from this man before he hurts himself. Then it got nasty after that. I could have killed the guy. His name was Lawrence Dwight Smith. After a time, I cooled off, and the thought came to me, what if the son of a bitch is right? And I did everything that he said. He said, you know, some of the dialogue sounds like a pulp writer who takes himself seriously. I didn't really know how people talked. So I would go and listen to people talk, and I discovered that they didn't talk like they do in college papers. You know, they truncate their sentences, they start in the middle of a sentence, they start strong and end, you know, the way people talk. I did a rewrite on it, best I could, and I sent it out. Twenty-two publishers read it. Well, I was sending it to green card publishers because I didn't know. It says publishers, so I sent it. What, what do you mean by green card publishers? Well, you know, there's a list of publishers, and I started with Abington something, I don't know. When I got down to Riley and Lee, it was 22 publishers later, and they bought it, to the consternation of everybody. Uh, I have written a Tarzan book. If you ever read it, you'll know it's a Tarzan I've book, it. I've read it. except that it takes place in another time. Well, what did Burroughs think of it? Who wrote Tarzan? He said it was the best book he ever wrote. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so it must have been good. Oh, then I wrote another book called Halo and Ink, which was a story of a pulp writer in Chicago, and it was really a sociological story of, of that era and of the people on the near north side, the artists and so forth, none of whom I knew, knew anything about, but I made it up. It sold the first publisher it went to, a Wilford Funk. They gave me a $500 advance. They went out of the book business in the middle of this thing. Well, here's what happened to the book. I sent it to Fair Hobson of William Morrow, you know, the good publisher. I got a letter back from him saying this was one of those books that had we seen it when it was first written, we would have gone for it, but it's one of these books that becomes obsolete in a year, you know, this kind of thing. It was a timely thing. But he says, the next time you're in New York, stop in and see me. I'd like to talk to you. So the next time in New York, I went to New York immediately. By this time, I was with Zip Davis and saw Thayer Hobson. I had started another book. 
called Gunner Goes Abroad. This, by this time, the war had just started. It was the so-called phony war at this time, if you remember. So Thayer said to me, I love this. But by the time I could publish it, you finish it, I get it published, the war is going to be over. And it has no more, it would have no more interest. But let me see the next thing you write. So I threw the manuscript away. Instead of going to another publisher, you know, but what did I know? However, I rewrote the ending into a mystery story, and it was published under the title of Murder Wears a Halo by John Evans. I don't know if he ever ran across it. Mammoth Detective. Yeah, either Mammoth Detective or Mammoth Mystery, one of the two. I, I, I do want to get into uh, how you got connected with Ziff Davis and the work you did for them. All this was happening, I writing these books and nothing was happening with them. I began to think more and more of what uh, Pat Lally had said, write for the pulps. So... I had been, in my unwilted salad days, a hip tracer for Carson Perry Scott, and I borrowed from that. I wrote two short stories about Wilbur Petty, P-E-D-D-I-E, who wore a bowler hat, and you could look at three times before you saw him once, which is what the ideal skip tracer should look mm -hmm. like. Wilbur Petty worked for this department store, and the first case was called A Quarter for Your Trouble, and Wilbur goes out to collect from a woman and finds her dead on the floor, and it's a mystery story. And at the end, he solves it. A friend of mine named Leroy Yerksa, he had sold amazing stories, science fiction piece. See, he was kingfish. There was a bunch of us who kind of knew each other who wanted to be writers, yeah. and he was the first guy to sell, so we kind of saluted him. Leroy said, uh, Zip Davis, of which I have just sold a story, he said they've started a detective magazine. So I sent it in, they sent me a check, I said, fine. So I said, I wrote another one, sent it in, they sent me a check for that. Penny a word. I think the first one was 60 bucks, and the next one was like 80 bucks, which was a lot of money then. Then I get a call from uh, Ray Palmer. Palmer says, Mr. Davis would like to see you. Would you make a, call his secretary and make a date? First time I'd ever been into a publishing company. It was in the Diana Court building in Chicago, and you come up the seventh floor, and here are these two crystal glass doors from ceiling to floor, and you go in and here are reproductions of covers that have been laminated into the walls, and you go over to the switchboard operator who sits behind glass, and she presses a button, and the glass rolls back, and she says, what can I do for you, please? She just won Miss America or something, because there was never an ugly girl ever hired by Ziff Davis in the years that I was there. Anyway, I went in to see Mr. Davis. He sat in a big room. It was Ziff and Davis, except Ziff was never in Chicago, hardly ever. He was in Washington doing books on Air Force stuff. They had flying and photography and so, you know, big magazines in the field. Anyway, I go in, and I, it's like approaching Mussolini. You have to walk half a mile across carpet up to your knees, and here he sits behind, not a desk, but a kind of a semicircle of leather which was about two feet wide. That was his desk. And it's damned impressive. The walls were in the same color leather. And he says, I like these very much. I would like you to be the editor of the magazine. I said to him, Mr. Davis, you're the first editor I ever met. I have absolutely no idea what an editor does. He says, I can teach a high school graduate in two weeks how to edit a magazine. Paste up and so on and so forth. But I can't teach him how to write. And you were a writer, and I won't hire an editor who isn't a writer. So I said, well, I don't know. I've got a good job. I've had it for years. And he said, may I ask what you make? And I told him, adding $25 a week, that he shouldn't think I'm, you know, I'm put. 
he looked at me almost pityingly. This is so vivid. He says, well, we can do much better than that. So he said, when could you start? And I said, well, I really should give notice. It's, I have a job that you just can't walk out and put the office boy in the chair. He says, well, would a couple of weeks be all right? And I said, I think so. Actually, I want to take my vacation. You know, I had a vacation coming. So he said, all right, but your salary starts as of this coming Monday. They were great at this. When they wanted somebody, did they put on a show? When they wanted to get rid of somebody, you you know, you never knew your throat was cut till you shook your head. Oh, he brought in Ray and introduced me. And after the fact, he says, Ray, this man is your assistant editor. Since the book was a quarterly, I would help Ray on the science fiction books, but I would have complete charge the detective books. And it was fine. Ray and I got along. He didn't like my highbrow attitude toward his stories. But I said, you could be a lowbrow and hate your stories, Ray. That's how I got in with Ray. Okay. Well, now, here you are running Mammoth Mystery and Mammoth Detective. Unfortunately, it is almost impossible to round up these particular old pulps. A lot of the science fiction survives. The mammoths are gone. Who wrote for you? And how did you get stories? Uh, who wrote for me? Originally, I bought from the stable. You know, we had a stable. It furnished. We would say, we will buy so much from you unread. We never read the stories that our writers turned in. But if they turned in a bad story, they could get their toes stepped on. We guaranteed them at the time 300 a month, which is 30,000 words. Bill McGivern, David Wright O'Brien, Leroy Yerkes, I wrote a few until a friend or not, I said, you can't write for me. Frank Gruber, Don Wilcox wrote some. Not very good, but because he wasn't a detective story writer. According to some of the jacket blurbs and, and cover biographies and so on, you did either 600 radio programs or 750 radio programs or whatever. What was that all about? Well, that's how I met my present wife. I was out here and writing pulp and uh, doing my books, and a man by the name of Langlois owned a transcription company in New York called Langworth Transcription Company. They sold package programs to radio stations, music and so forth, and, uh, which you could tie the local advertising blurbs into. So he had had lunch with a man at Ziff Davis, a man I didn't know, actually. And he said to him, I need a writer. I've got an idea to do a series of minute mysteries, which I would call Mike Mysteries, he said. Uh, can you give me a writer who might be able to handle them? And the guy... This fellow said, we had an editor who was on leave of absence in California who was quite a writer. Let me get, find out what his name and address is, and I'll give it to you. He called Cy Langlois and said his name is Brown. He lives in Burbank and so on. I know none of this until one day the doorbell rings, and a guy introduces himself as Cy Langlois, and he tells me what he wants. And he said, well, I'll tell you what you do. Write me two or three of them and send them to me in New York. And if I like them, we'll make a deal. And I said, fine. So I wrote three of them and sent them to him and got a call from him. He's sending me a contract. Pay $30 a piece. This was in the 40s, late 40s. And he will take 10 a week. What it was, you set the crime and the lieutenant, the same lieutenant, police through all of them, comes in, looks around, says the man, it was a perfect crime, Mr. Jones, but you overlooked one little detail. Now, the announcer comes on and says, and while you're figuring that out, folks, let me tell you about the bargain of suits down at so-and-so. 
And the guy will go on for three minutes, but the audience is going to wait because they want to hear what that one thing was. You see what I mean? I had an office in Burbank, and the walls are full of dents where I try to figure out gimmicks of banging my head against it. But I got them, and I wrote 10 a week. And uh, the program director on the show, a girl I'd never met, was Doris Kay, who was now in there. And Doris Kay did not like Hollywood writers. She'd never met one, but she didn't like them. So every time I would send these in, she would try to test them out to make sure that it was really sense. For instance, I remember reading a thing where Pancho Villa had captured a, an American newspaper man, it's probably apocryphal, and said, I'm going to kill you. And the guy said, look, at least give me a break, give me a head start. Let me put three ice cubes on the ground, and you don't come after me until they melt. And the guy says, great, figuring it would take ten minutes. Well, if you ever put ice cube on something completely dry, it takes a long time to melt. That's what the story is. So I used it in one of these things, proving that the highball had been spilt so-and-so and not so-and-so, you know, that kind of thing. Doris read this thing, and she got some ice cubes and put them on the carpet to see if they would melt. This was my fan, was, and they didn't melt. And another thing, a snake cannot crawl on a highly waxed surface. God knows where that came from. Anyway, then he said, I got another call from him, he said, we will also take ten western things, stories of famous men, little vignettes about them. So I went down to the library and got a bunch of books and looked through things, and then after I used up all I could find, I began to make them up. You'd be surprised some of the things that famous people did. They would be surprised at some of the things they were saying. You're now accepted probably as... As the real thing, you know, that's the way it is. Once it's in print, yeah, that. once it's in print, it's true. But that's how I met Doris. And that was the 600 radio program. Yeah, it was the 600. Actually, when I came back to Chicago and we moved to New York, I turned the whole thing over without anybody knowing except the two of us, Paul Fairman, who did that. Yeah, and I gave him 20 bucks of everyone he sold and kept 10 for my connection. <laughs> and you make a buck here and there, you know. And Paul, God, Paul was a fast writer and one of the best plotters I've ever seen. Paul wrote a lot of uh, pocketbooks under a lot of names after he left Ziff Davis. He wrote for, is there a publisher named Monarch? Yeah, well, he wrote tons for them, I guess. Study in Terror yeah, by Ellery Queen. By, yeah, he could write damn near anything. I don't know what he died of. I think he had ulcers or something because he was a terrible, on the surface, the most relaxed guy in the world, and underneath it was eating him all the time. Mm -hmm. I discovered him, if I may say so modestly. He was a janitor at the... Uh, theater on Michigan Avenue in Chicago, uh, kind of a high-toned theater. He wanted to be a writer, so he had a, a room like you give a janitor, and uh, he wrote some detective stuff and sent it to New York, and New York sent it back. So he sent me one called Late Rain, which was a beautiful story, a, a mood story. It opened in the cemetery and so on and so forth. He got it beautifully. So I bought it, sent him a check and a letter saying, come in and see me. And here comes this painfully thin man with a, he a suit on that just was horrible. He looked horrible. He didn't have any money. And uh, we talked a while and uh, he was beautifully in awe of an editor. And he sent me some other stuff, and I bought a couple of others, and a couple I rejected. And then I began to give him 
uh, springboards for plots. And he would write them, and he worked himself into where he was a staff writer. Then when I went to New York, he came to New York and uh, wrote for a while. And then when there was an opening, I brought him in as an editor. And Paul never really cared about editing. He knew the mechanics of editing. And uh, Seal Goldsmith did most of the picking of stories after I left. And uh, then he left, Seal took over, and it was the best movie ever made. It's too bad they didn't hire her in the 40s. I want to hear about now your screenwriting, TV and motion pictures. I got a call in March of 56 from Roy Huggins, whom we corresponded with. And he said, uh, I am now a television producer at Warner Brothers. And I'm doing a series called Cheyenne. Quit your job and come on out here. So I said, Roy, I never saw a screenplay. I wouldn't know if one of it bit me in the ass. I want me to come out and write something I know absolutely nothing about. He says, you'll have no problems. You're a visual writer. And uh, I can teach you how to do a screenplay easy. And I said, I'm not going to quit my job, Roy, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take a leave of absence for a month and come on out and see what I can do. He said, we'll pay your expenses out here, put you up at a hotel, everything, while you're doing it. So I said, okay. So I went and asked Davis if I could take a leave of absence to write some television for Hollywood. Because Davis and Zip both loved their writer, their, their people to be good in other fields, mm -hmm. you know. So uh, I came out, got here, Roy was sick in bed. So he says, look, all I can tell you is get a couple of old scripts, study them. So I got a couple of old scripts and saw how the interiors, exteriors, and so forth and so on. And I wrote a Cheyenne. And I gave it to him. I didn't know enough to know that it takes long to do them. So I did one by a week. Turned it in. Sat down. He was out of bed by this time, but still home. And he began to read it. He bust out laughing. Well, I was insulted. I know I'm not a professional, but what the hell is so funny? And he says, you just blew the budget in the opening scene. I'd had a scene where a bunch of the railroad wanted to move I'd come across this information, I think, when I was doing those Western mm -hmm. things. That at one time, railroads, <coughs> when they wanted to open up an area, and then they wanted to justify building a line out to that area, they would take a lot of people out give them farmlands and everything, and, and start farming, and start towns, and the first thing you know, you got a respectable place to run a railroad to. So this was a bunch of these people that the railroad was going to move out west, and the Indians attack them on the way, and on and on and on. But my opening scene was in Omaha, where this spring, where these people were leaving from. I had a train of that period waiting on the track. I had an ornamental iron fence between the train and the people who were waiting to board it. I had, you know, 50 kids and uh, all kinds of things like that. Well, putting 50 kids into a movie can break a movie because in the first place they have to stop for school all the time and they had to pay more even in those days. The settlers, I had too many to begin with. A train like that, they, all they could use is stock and they couldn't play these people in front of a a piece of stock, at least where it pulled out. They could have keyed it and used an old photograph, you know, and put them in front of it. But he said to me, you got an orna ornamental iron fence in there, right? I said, yes, sir. He said, uh, 
Production would call me up and say, Mr. Huggins, we have your ornamental iron fence. It cost us $50,000, but we got it. I said, I'll tell you what, you, let's, let's not use ornamental iron fence. Let's use a rope. But let's not go out and buy one. Let's use the one from Oxbow Incident. You know, we already got that rope. Because now you're thinking the way a producer wants it. <laughs> so I finished that, and they liked it. Bill Orr, who was the head of television, liked it. So they wanted me to do another one. So I called up Davis and says, can I extend my leave of absence? And he says, you are coming back. And I said, yes, I wouldn't want to stay out here. So I wrote another one, and they liked it. Now it's time for the series to come up to be renewed, and they didn't know whether it was going to be renewed or not. So I went back to New York. I'm back about a week, and I get an envelope in the mail, big, fat envelope. I open it up. It's a seven-year contract from Warner Brothers. It's 650 a week. This is in 1956, when $650 was a lot of money. Seven-year contract. Yeah. What I didn't notice was it had six-month options. See what I mean? At the end of six months, they would raise it to 750 you know, this kind of thing. Or they could drop you on your ass. Well, I signed it, divorced my wife, and went to California. <laughs> Finally got rid of her. Or she got rid of me. We're still deciding that. I came out, went to work. I was writing for the 77 Sunset Strip and all of there. They had a whole series, if you remember. Surfside 6, Colt 45. I never wrote for Hawaiian Eye. That was one I didn't write for. But all the others, I guess that pretty well covers it. I can't about think. Mission Impossible? I wrote a flock of those. Did you? Oh, yeah. That was a fun show. I thought that it was. You paint yourself into a corner that you cannot possibly get out of, and then you get out of it. Bruce Lansbury called me just recently, and he's doing Movie of the Weeks now. Mm -hmm. But he was the producer on the show, and we got along. I did, I think, like 15 of them. Yeah. They were fun. Anyway, I discovered that it was costing me money, this contract. Because at that time, the top on an hour show, I think, was 4500 Today, it's 11000 4500 and I would do one in two weeks. And I didn't get any place near 4500 bucks, you know. I would get, you know, 1200 1400 whatever it was, but I got a check every week whether I turned in anything or not. So I developed a sudden writer's block. So a couple of weeks go by, and I turn in no copy, and I get a call from Bill Orr, who says, who's Warner's son-in-law, who said, Howard, what's going on? We're not getting copy from you. And I said, I don't know what's happened, Bill. You know, I've run up against a stone wall. I sit down at the typewriter, I freeze. He says, what, you want out of your contract? And I said, how can you say that? That's my security blanket. You know, I'm not ready to plunge. He says, you know, cut out the horseshit. Do you want out of your contract? And I didn't say anything. And he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll let you out of your contract if you write four more episodes for us at scale. Well, scale was more than I was getting. So you got a deal. I instantly recovered from my writer's block. What were the four episodes? Well, Mission Impossible? No, no, Mission Impossible was not at Warner's. Yeah, that was at Paramount. No, these were the regular ones. I don't know. I stole... Uh, Patricia Highsmith wrote a wonderful story that Hitchcock made, I think, about the guy says, I'll kill your wife. Strangers on a train. Well, I read that, and I said, Jesus, this would make one hell of a, of a 77 Sunset Strip. So we had to give credit to the writers on that. I think Chandler was in on that. I changed it a lot, you know, but it was still a basic thing. In the original story, there's this wonderful shot. The guy's a tennis player, 
and they're watching a tennis match, and everybody's head is going this way as the ball goes, and these two guys are staring. They're heads perfectly motionless, each other across the, the from one stand to another. It looks so strange to see a head perfectly sane, and all the others, you know, a real Hitchcock touch. Anyway, I didn't steal that. I'd love to. But uh, that was one of them I did. That's the only one I can remember. The minute I got out of the contract, I kept right on writing for Warner Brothers, but at this time for scale, you know. And how'd you get into feature films? Well, Jack Warner went over to the drugstore across from Warner Brothers and picked up a book that he liked the title of. He brought it back, and he called in Mike Ludmer, the story editor, and he says, I want a picture made on this book. And Mike says, good book. Warner says, how the hell would I know? I just picked it up. I never read it. So Mike looks at him blankly and says, I love the title, Portrait of a Mobster. Because, you know, Warner's made a fortune on mm -hmm. gangster fiction. Sure. And walked out of the office. So Ludmer says, who the hell can we get to write a gangster story? Shortly before this, I had written the thing, uh, Playhouse 90. I knew the uh, story editor, Bud Kay, on it who called me up and said, Jesus, you know, they're going nuts for stories. For They had four producers at this time on Playhouse 90. And he said, can you come up with a good idea for a Playhouse 90? It's a prestige show, which who, you know, everybody knew that was the best show on the air. And I said, let me call you back. And I called him back. I says, how about doing the St. Valentine's Day Massacre? He'd heard vaguely about it. He didn't really know anything about it. So I sent him four pages of what it was about. And he Xeroxed it and distributed it to the four uh, producers. And John Hausman was the one of the producers. And John Hausman says, I've got to do this. He had done another kind of documentary about a mine disaster some years ago, and it got big raves. So they called me up and said, come in and meet Mr. Hausman. I went in and meet Mr. Hausman, and we got along fine. He said, do it. And I says, I need to do some more research on it. CBS sent me to Chicago, the finest hotel, the finest everything, you know. And I did my research, mostly of which was sitting in bars drinking with friends I knew. And uh, because I knew it all anyway, I just wanted to get a free trip. You learn in this business. Anyway, I did Playhouse 90. I did, uh, it was called Seven Against the Wall with Eric Sebride, the narrator. And it was a big success. End of that. Now somebody in Mike Ledmer's office said, Jesus, I saw a gangster thing on Playhouse 90 that was great, you know, so, so I bet that guy could write it. Well, nobody knew who it was, so they had to call CBS to find out who wrote it. And they said, Howard Brown, and they called, then they gave my agent's name, and they called up my agent and said, where do we find Howard Brown? My agent, a great sense of humor, says, stick your head out the window and yell. He'll hear you. He said, what do you mean? He says, he's working over in television. Those were in the days when television and features didn't talk to each other. Now we're carrying the studios. So they called me, although they used the phone, and I came over, and Mike Ledmer says, find an office someplace and read this book, and uh, if you like it, uh, we can make a deal. So I went and read the book, written by Harry Gray. Absolutely unreadable. It, I went back and says, there's two things in it, machine guns and fornication. There's nothing else. It's supposed to have been the true story of Dutch Schultz's life. Well, I knew about Dutch Schultz's life and my gangster studies, and if Dutch Schultz ever read that, he'd sue. So I said, you've got no story. And he says, well, Jesus, Mr. Warner wants a picture made of it. And I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. 
I happen to know quite a bit about Schultz. Let me do you an outline and uh, put me on salary and I'll do an outline. I called my agent up and says, they're going to put me on. I won't take less than a thousand a week because they really want it. So they called him up and they gave me six week guarantee, a thousand a week to do an outline. Okay. I gave me an office and a secretary, Margaret, an elderly woman, a woman in her 50s, who'd been with the studio since Jack Warner was born, practically. I went in and sat down and figured out a story and turned in, gave her about 15 pages to do. And says, Typhi, send them upstairs. She says, I won't do it. And I said, wait a minute, I'm mixed up. I thought when a writer got a secretary and he said, please do so-and-so, and I did say, please, you would do it. And she says, if you send up 15 pages, they won't like it. I said, they haven't read it. She says, anything done in a hurry is no good. What I'll do is I'll wait till the end of the week and I'll send up 10 pages. In that week, I finished the outline. And I spent the rest of the five weeks because she would only send up five, ten pages a week. They were very happy with it and kept sending down, Jesus, great, go ahead. I, I went over and, you know, I had the full run of the studio. If I wanted to see a picture, I just called and said, I'd like to see so-and-so in screening room nine at four o'clock. And I was over and watched it. What did you ask for? Well, mostly gangster pictures. You know, the old gangster pictures that they turned out because... Cagney and Bogart and yeah, Robinson. And they were great, you know. Not by today's standards, because they're not so sophisticated, but they're still great pictures because they never lagged. You know, they started out at the top and kept on going up. Anyway, they okayed it. All right, now I'll go into screenplay. 1500 a week to do the screenplay. They gave me a director, Joe Pebney, and Joe and I got along immediately. So he said, I got to have a technical advisor on you know, I said, fine. So they put me on as technical advisor while they're shooting the pick. I took I made a fortune out of this fucking thing. We would uh, spend lunch hours together discussing the script, i.e. we would be playing gin rummy and talking about anything but the script. And I gave him a lot of help, which he didn't need. And we made the picture. Vic Morrow played Schultz. And Vic Morrow loved it. He says the best thing he ever did. So much so that, you know, but this time... They had decided to shoot it in black and white to give that uh, cinema verite feeling of the period. And they discovered that they probably had made a mistake. They should have done it in color because it's hard to sell after color a black and white unless you bring it from France. I had an idea for the, for the credits that was absolutely horrible for as far as the writers or anybody else's credit was concerned. As the story opens, each credit they'd flash on, they started out with a with a blank picture frame, and with each credit they would add another feature to the picture of Vic Murrow. People are watching what's going on on that picture, they don't pay attention to names, so nobody knew who wrote it or produced it or anything, I assume. But we said later that that was a mistake. Anyway, they made it, got excellent reviews. What I loved about it was at the same time Roy had done Fever in the Blood, and Fever in the Blood and Portrait of a Mobster opened at the same time. And in some theaters, they opened as a double bill, because they were both mourners. And the critics said, of the two, Portrait of a Mobster was far superior. That must have made Roy real happy. No, he knew about it, because I sent him all the clippings. Uh, we, had, we had a great relationship. 
Well, then I did St. Valentine's Day Massacre because uh, Roger Corman had seen the Playhouse 90 version, and he told me this later, and he filed in the back of his mind, someday he was going to do that as a picture. Then I got a call from my agent who said, Roger Corman wants to talk to you. So I went up to see Roger, and he says, I want to do the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and I says, fine. He says, uh, I am going to produce it for 20th Century Fox. It's not going to be mine, because I went to them with the idea, and they loved it. So they gave me an office over at 20th, and I wrote the picture over there. I thought it was awful, although they followed my script. But I'll tell you why it was awful. The acting in that picture was so bad. George Siegel played in it. And the first thing I said to Roger, who directed it, I says, for Christ's sake, Roger, let's not do the popular picture of gangsters, where they swagger around with cigars sticking out of their mouth and talk out of the side of their mouth, because gangsters weren't like that. Or if they were, they stole from Hollywood, you know, which is, I think, the truth. They used to watch these pictures and say, gee, we don't act like that. We better nobody believe we're a gangster. He misdirected it terribly. Robards played Capone, and he looked about as much like Capone as my daughter does. Jack Nicholson played in it, a very minor part, because he was just coming up. Bruce Dern played in it. Nobody knew him at that time. Well, a lot of people have been had played Capone in that era. Robards did. Rod Steiger played him in a picture. Best Capone ever on the screen. And Gazzara played him in your picture. Yeah, I could have killed him. But you see what happened. They had a young director. His name's up there someplace. I can't remember his name. Steve is about 24 years old, bright as hell. This was his first picture. And Zara will go for the throat if he ever finds a director he can handle. And Zara ruined the picture, absolutely destroyed it. He put in scenes. I never spoke to him. I wrote quite a bit for Zara when he was doing Run for Your Life. I wrote a lot of those. But what happened was that Zara took over. He rewrote scenes. I had a wonderful scene. I, see, I try to make Capone a buffoon, because he was a buffoon. In spite of all the stories, he could have run General Motors and all this. The only reason he ever held this empire his together was absolute fear, because this man would go crazy and, and order everybody hit. You know, he was that kind of a guy. I had a scene where he and this society gal in a car, Susan Blakely played the gal, and she really played a good job, uh, one of these spoiled debutantes of the period who loved to run around with gangsters, as they really did. They get in the Sylvan Glade, they're talking, and she impulsively kisses him over something he'd said. To Capone, that meant, off comes the clothes, kid. So he begins to unbuckle his belt, you know, he's, he's going to go to work. And she says, none of that. And she gets out of the car and starts running. And he starts to chase her, and his pants fall down around his ankles, and he goes ass over appetite in the middle of this field, and she's so helpless from laughter that he's able to grab her, you see. She says, that makes me look like an ape, you know, I'm nuts. I, I won't play that scene. And I said, Ben, you're supposed to be a buffoon. That's what the whole fucking picture is about. Well, I won't play it. I said, well, don't tell me your problems. It's between you and the producer and you. So he calls up the producer, who talks to Steve and says, all right, see what he wants to do and let him do it. Now they have the scene where he kisses her and she breaks away and he goes out after her. No one button and pants or anything. And they start to run. And then they go into the slow motion, running across the... 
that's you know, good. which went out in 1950, or should have. Honest to God, it's, it, it's what it looked like. Then there's another scene where she's shot outside of a hotel. They had had a, had a trysting place, and they came down. Capone's second in command wanted to get rid of Capone so he could take over. So he called up the Northside mob and told them where they were, where the girl and Capone was. So Capone comes down with the girl out of the back of the hotel and start to go to the car. The heavies are already parked waiting. And they bring up the machine gun. And as he brings up the machine gun to the open window, he hits the side of the window with a barrel and goes, plink. Capone wasn't born yesterday. Capone pays no attention to the girl. He hits the ground. The guns go off. In the script, Capone takes kind of a last look at her, just a quick glance, gets in his car and drives off, which is exactly what he would have done. He's going to stick around a lot of people, and here stands the famous Al Capone with a corpse of a girl. You know, it'd make headlines, and he did not want headlines, in spite of what they say. He likes headlines of going to ball game and shaking hands with ball players. That's fine, but not standing over the corpse of a girl shot to pieces. Ben says, I don't like that. It's not dramatic. I says, it's a character. It's a man's character, Ben. What are you talking about dramatics? He says, here's how we're going to do it. Not, we might do it. Or wouldn't it be a good idea? Here's how we're going to do it. She's going to be shot as they come out of the back of the hotel, where there's a big spotlight. Why they didn't hit him, nobody ever explained. But she's shot. He now takes her in his arms and begins to say the act of contrition for her. And people are gathering around and watching, and it's fascinating to everybody except the author. And it, it was dramatic, except it made absolutely no sense. Well, there are other things in the picture. I hate to get onto what every writer does, start bitching about what Hollywood does to his works of art. In 1973, I decided that I could not stay sane if I continued to write television. So I said, I'm going to retire, and everybody laughed except me, and I retired. I teach mystery novel writing and screenwriting. One day a week, I have two classes, three and a half hours each. Other than the Hafner Press omnibus of the four Paul Pine novels, none of Howard Brown's work is currently in print, to my knowledge. If you go to IMDb, you'll find a long list of his television shows, many of which can be found streaming. Curiously, his novel, Thin Air, formed the basis for his first television credit on the show Climax in 1955, and his last for an episode of Simon and Simon in 1982. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com, and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com, or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.